The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Full disclosure, I'm really excited about this passage, just to give you a fair warning. <laughs> I'm really excited about it, but I tell you what, I'm usually very, very excited about what we're uh, doing in the scriptures. Let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians with me. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20 in the New Testament. If you need one, grab a Bible there in the pew rack and open, us with us, uh, open there with us. We are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, exalting in the truth of Scripture. We open it together to see where it's coming from and uh, enjoy together what the Bible teaches. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, uh, you will notice, I hope, that uh, I have drawn the title for the preaching series in Colossians from this passage. So in that, I'm identifying that this is one of the most important parts of the book of Colossians. So we titled our sermon series, Christ Preeminent, because that language comes from Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which again gives you a tip off to the notion that I'm just really excited about this passage. It's a wonderful text of scripture. Now, uh, as you are there already, or perhaps still making your way there, let's remember that Paul is writing this letter to a congregation of the Roman colony of Colossae. They are a small church in a small place, but who believe in a great and glorious gospel message of a great and glorious Christ who rules over all things and who reigns in their lives through the forgiveness of their sins. And Paul is writing to them to encourage them and build them up. And listen, you and I need to be built up and encouraged in our faith as well. So the words that Paul writes by way of the Spirit to the church at Colossae are exactly the words that you and I need for our time as well. So we're going to hear them, Lord willing, in faith. So let's pray as we hear the scriptures this morning. Heavenly Father, we pause now to, to say how much we love the scriptures and how thankful we are that you reveal yourself to us here. Lord, by the same spirit that inspired Paul to write these words for us, uh, may that Spirit, rest upon our hearts and minds to illuminate us, give us understanding. And not just understanding that remains in the head, but understanding that moves the heart and soul to be changed and live according to your truth. Come now, Lord, and bless your word to your people as we exalt in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Colossians 1 at verse 15 through Verse 20, under the heading, The Preeminence of Christ, this is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Uh, do keep your Bible open there as we hear the scriptures. Uh, again, Paul is writing to the Colossian Christians to encourage them. And the reason why he wants to encourage them principally is because he wants these Christians to grasp more significantly 
the truth that they have come to believe. He wants them to grow deeper in spiritual understanding and comprehension of the truth that they have come to believe. And as they grow in their comprehension, he wants to be sure that they will not be deceived by the many things that will come upon them seeking to distract them from the truth that they have come to believe. He wants them to be more sure, more fully convinced, so as not to be deceived from anything to undermine their faith. Now, at this time in the first century, there were many things operative to be distracting. Things to take these Colossian Christians away from the gospel. Things like, for example, fundamentalist Judaism of the Pharisees that was seeking to impose rule after rule and law after law of their obedience, saying that what matters is your works, not your faith. There was also the influence of secular Greek philosophy or paganism or hedonism. These different worldviews that were trying to convince these Colossian Christians that Jesus is not Lord and you should follow some other path. You should pave your own path or you should follow the way of some other philosopher or mystic. That was present in the first century. Now, what is very clear from the text is that Paul is concerned about that. What's not clear from the text is that Paul doesn't specifically say what he is concerned is going to pull you away from Christ. He's not specific to say this particular teacher teaching this particular doctrine with this particular implications. He doesn't name names in the book of Colossians. Now, he does do that in other books that he writes so as to say that Paul is not particularly concerned about one specific teaching. He is generally concerned about the notion of false teaching being something to take you away from Christ. So as he writes to the Colossian Christians, he's not thinking about a particular thing to draw you away. He's saying anything that would draw you away is what I'm concerned about. I want you to focus on Christ, on what, who He is and what He has done so that you will not be pulled away to other things, pulled away to other teachings or other worldviews or philosophies. Now, here's the immediately relevant thing for us in our age. It's wonderfully helpful that Paul doesn't specifically just say this particular first century false teaching because that means that these words can be broadly applied across space, time, and history to apply to you and I in the 21st century living where we live, being surrounded by myriad number of teachings that want to take you this way or that way, but away from Jesus. To be a Christian and to stay upon the narrow path and believe the Christian worldview and to believe the Bible's teachings is something that takes courage to stay with Christ because you are constantly being assailed and assaulted to say, no, 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 that's not really worth it or the fullness of your joy is not in Jesus, it's in something else. You're constantly being assailed by that. I don't even have to give you an illustration because you know exactly the things that tempt you away from Christ. And Paul says, whatever it is, whoever's teaching it, whatever its implications, if it takes you away from Jesus, it's not going to result in your ultimate happiness or joy or satisfaction or delight. It's going to be a lesser thing. Paul writes here, still in the introduction of the book of Colossians, to say that Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. Christ is most glorious and wonderful and worthy of your life and obedience. Don't look elsewhere. Stay with Jesus. And so these particular words in chapter 1, 15 to 20, 
They, they read something like what commentators often identify as almost like a hymn. The way, they, the way they move rhythmically and by a pattern to make a point, it's almost like a hymn. It's not totally concluded that it's a hymn, but nevertheless, what Paul says here about Jesus is beautifully depicted in this form of almost like two stanzas or two verses of a song. There's a verse one and a verse two. Now, I know it goes verses 15 to 20, but what I mean is that there's, there's one stanza and a second stanza, and the way those two stanzas are arranged are very clear. Look again in the text, and I want you to notice that there is a division. There is a division between verses 15 to 17 and then verses 18 to 20. And that division is going to be our outline for how we're going to look at the text, and I'll just give it to you straight away. In verses 15 to 17, it's talking about Jesus with respect to creation. Jesus as Lord over creation. And then in verses 18 to 20, it's speaking about Jesus with respect to redemption. It, it, it paints Jesus. It glorifies Jesus. It speaks of Jesus with respect to his glory as creator and then as his glory as redeemer. In verses 15 to 17, creator of all things. Verses 18 to 20, redeemer of all things. So that's our outline, and I want you to note that. But I also want you to note a few things before we dive into that outline. Notice some repetitions. There are some repetitions here. In verse 15, Paul says, he is, speaking about Jesus. And then he will amplify that in verse 17. And he is. He is, he is saying, here's who Jesus is, and he is this. It amplifies what he is saying. He is, and he is, in the first half. And then, in verses 18, there is also a parallel. And he is, he is. Jesus is being uh, heaped on praise, heaped on glory. Paul is saying, this is who he is, and he is this, and he is this, and he is this. He is, he is, he is, speaking about Jesus. Notice also the repetition of the word in verse 15 and verse 18, this very particular word that we'll look at in some detail, firstborn. You see it in verse 15, firstborn of all creation. You see it in verse 18, firstborn from the dead. There is a firstborn in each of the two stanzas, which is a very significant point of emphasis. One more point of emphasis before we dive into the details. Notice the repetition of the use of the word all. Notice the repetition of the use of the word all, which is why we call the sermon title what we have. He is the firstborn of all creation, verse 15. For by him all things, verse 16, were created. In verse 16 at the end, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God. Verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things. Now, just to give you a tip, when... Biblical writers repeat things that often, they want you to pay attention to them. All, meaning everything. So, let's exalt in Christ together as we hear these words as Paul wrote them to the church at Colossae. He is Jesus Christ. First of all, he is in verses 15 to 17. He is the Lord of creation. Jesus Christ is Lord of creations. Verse 15 says, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. 
That is, Paul is speaking about Jesus here, not simply saying that Jesus is somebody who taught about God. There are many people who say that, that Jesus was just a good moral teacher who taught things about God. No, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ himself is the image of God, the visible representation of the invisible God. He is the representation of the eternal God. Now, we know that's true because not only what Paul says here, but Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 9, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not just some good teacher about God. He is God himself. There are furthermore some people who say, you know, even if we grant to you that God exists, right? some people will say, suppose that he does. Uh, it would be the height of arrogance to say that we know who he is or that we know what he wants from us. We couldn't possibly know who God is or what he requires. There are people who say, sure, God might exist, but it's arrogant to say we know who it is. But actually, it's actually the point that Paul is making here. That humanity can know the God that made them because the God who made them is Jesus Christ we can know God and know what God wants from us because in Jesus we see and know God. God is revealed to us in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is furthermore, do you see it still in verse 15? Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. This is very important. The firstborn of all creation because as I made note, it will repeat itself. The word firstborn, the way Paul uses this word firstborn in the text has this sense of priority but not with respect to time or birth order, as if to suggest that Jesus is the first of all created beings. When Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that God made Jesus first and then made everything else. Actually, that understanding that Jesus is a created being that's the ancient heresy called Arianism that the church has denied for 2,000 years that the Jehovah's Witnesses actually still believe, which is why we identify them as outside the scope of historic Christian orthodoxy. Jesus is not a created being. Paul is not here calling Christ the firstborn of all creation as the first in a birth order. Rather, firstborn does not relate to birth order so much as rank or status. That is to say that Jesus is firstborn of all creation in the sense that he rules over all creation as the priority, as the one who has dominion. He's not the firstborn in terms of he was created first. He is the firstborn that he rules over all creation. That is to say he's not the first domino in a chain of dominoes. He is the hand that sets up every domino. He is the firstborn. He is the one who has sovereign dominion. Not numerical sequence, but sovereign dominion. So Paul is exalting in Jesus Christ here because these Colossian Christians have come to believe in Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. And Paul wants them to know, who is this Jesus? Why is he so worthy of your obedience and love? Who is he? Paul says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, why Jesus deserves such glory and honor and priority as the Lord of creation. He says in verse 16, for by him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created. 
This is why we don't get caught up by verse 15 saying he's the firstborn of all creation because verse 16 then follows up to say he created everything. He is not created. He himself is the creator. When Paul says all things, he means all things. Everything. Things in heaven, things on earth. Things visible, things invisible. What we can see, what we can't see. What we can know, what we cannot know. He is the sovereign Lord of all creation. Paul goes on to say, still, that all things includes thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Everything that exercises influence anywhere, in other words. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. When it comes to the issue of dominion, when it comes to the issue of rule, Christ has dominion and rule over all things that have dominion and rule. Paul is emphasizing here that when he says Christ reigns over all things, he means all things in creation. Why? Because all things were created through him and for him. All things, end of verse 16, were created through him and for him. Just the point is very clear, but notice how emphatic Paul is. He is building this emphatic case of Christ's supremacy as the Lord of creation to say his lordship, his dominion is absolutely comprehensive. Notice the emphasis. It is by him, that is to say Jesus is the author of creation. It is through him that all things are made, namely that Jesus Christ is the word of spoken authority to bring things into existence. By him, through him, for thing, for him, that is to say that he is the purpose and goal of all creation. Everything that finds its origin and existence and purpose in the world finds it in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus is the point of all creation. That's what he says. So he summarizes that in verse 17. Jesus Christ, verse 17, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is to say that everything in the universe, everything in the cosmos owes its existence, its continuation, its coherence to Christ. Christ is all things as the Lord of creation. Paul says he holds it all together. Now listen, that's a word for every age, isn't it? Christ holds all things together. Why do you need to know that? Because you are so often tempted to think that everything is falling apart, right? Why? Why why are you tempted to think that things are falling apart? And this is me pastorally stepping on your toes on purpose here. On my own toes. The reason why you and I are so often tempted to think that everything is falling apart Because we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we hold it all together. Or that somebody else does. Or some world government or this other nation holding all things together. The Bible says, loved one, Jesus Christ holds all things together. And he does a good job at holding everything together. Dear anxious heart, The world is not falling apart because Christ holds all things together. 
the sovereign, omnipotent Lord of creation who rules by way of his providence, holds everything together, believe it with all your heart, and then believe it again. This is what the Nicene Creed says so beautifully when it says that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things came to be. So, have you ever thought about Jesus as he was presented to us in the Gospels, whether you were reading them or, or hearing it read or hearing something taught about Jesus in the Gospels? Have you ever marveled, as the disciples did, that the wind and the waves obey him. They obey his word. Jesus speaks and the wind and waves stop. Jesus speaks and the demons flee. With a touch he can banish sickness. And with a word he can heal the lame. And with a word he can raise three day dead Lazarus from the grave. That's a marvel, isn't it? It's absolutely astonishing on one hand. And on the other hand, it makes total sense, doesn't it? Why should the wind and waves obey him? Because creation recognizes its master. Creation recognizes its Lord. It's a total marvel and it makes absolute sense. So, Paul is speaking about Jesus in this way, the Lord of creation, and we should ask ourselves the question, what will you do with a Jesus like that? A Jesus who is himself the Lord of creation, the sovereign, omnipotent, ruler, creator, sustainer. This is a Jesus who is not tame. This is a Jesus who is not easily containable by you or dismissed by you. This is a Christ who is, let it be seen, vast and glorious and worthy of all things. And Paul is amplifying the glory of Christ so that you would see that and be astonished by it. So that... The answer to the question, what will you do with a Christ like this, is there's only one answer you must bow down. You must bow down before a Christ like this who is Lord of creation. You cannot dismiss him and you know it. Your neighbors can't dismiss him and they know it. Your co-workers can't dismiss him and they know it. As the Lord of creation, all creation must bow before its Lord in adoration and then rise to give him loving service. Why? Because he is Lord of creation. Now here's the point. That is why. That is why it is such a revolutionary tragedy that sin exists in the world. Because creation that was intended to worship its maker instead says, no. And particularly human beings who are the crowning jewel of all creation, rather than bow down in worship and rise up in service, instead we prefer ourselves. The great tragedy of creation is that it is fallen. But Paul is not done here. Because the glory of Christ as the Lord of creation also brings about an additional greatness of Christ the Redeemer, whom he goes on to speak about in the next few verses. The glory of Christ in creation and then the glory of Christ in redemption in verses 18 through 20. See it again. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now back in verse 15... 
He told us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. That is a statement about Jesus' relationship to the Father, his relationship to God. Now in verse 18, he says he is the head of the body, the church. That's his relationship to people. The Christ who is the Lord of creation, the Christ who is the creator of all things, also has an intimately connected relationship with his people on earth that is called the church, that he is the head of. This is a description of his relationship of authority and lordship over his people. He is the head of the body, the church. So in the first half, it was his general authority over all things as creator. Here it is his specific authority over his people as redeemer. He is the head of the body, the church. That we are united together in Him. He is our head. We are members of His body. It is this profoundly intimate relationship. That mattered for the Colossian church. You needed to know that, that you, Colossian Christians in the first century, with all the pressures that abound on you, are joined to Christ, who is the Lord of creation, as your head. That is true of this congregation in Edgington, that you are members of Christ in his body. He is your spiritual head and you are joined to him. It is true of the church, invisible throughout the ages, united together in Christ across space, time, and history. That's what Paul is saying, that he is the head of his people. And he joins them together in spiritual union with him and they with one another. He goes on to say that not only is Christ the beginning of all created things, he is also the beginning of a, follow this, it's marvelous. Christ is the beginning of a new creation. Christ is not just Lord of creation, he is Lord over a new creation as well. The one who is the firstborn of creation is also firstborn from the dead. Verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now remember that word firstborn doesn't mean numerical priority and that's obvious because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead before he raised himself. So the fact that Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of the dead doesn't mean that Jesus is the first who's ever been raised from the dead, but it means that he is sovereign over all who are raised from the dead. Priority and dominion, not numerical order. That's what firstborn means. Think about it. Think about it. Paul is writing this letter 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus to a Roman province in Colossae in Asia Minor. And the news of the resurrection of Jesus has arrived in Colossae, and people believe it. It's only been 30 years, and the news gets there. And it's been 2,000 years, and have you noticed? The news is here. The good news of Jesus' resurrection makes its way to particular places with particular people and they receive it by faith and Jesus reigns over those who receive it by faith as the firstborn from the dead. These Colossian Christians believe it. You should believe it too. Paul is emphasizing, you are right to believe in Jesus Christ as raised from the dead because he's the firstborn of all creation. Why was it that Jesus was raised? Why is it that we celebrate Easter as his people, as his church gather together? Well, for this reason. Paul is very logical in his writing here. He makes a point. He emphasizes the point. He summarizes the point. He explains the point. Why is Jesus raised? Paul says for this purpose. Still in verse 18, 
He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? Purpose statement. That in everything, he might be, there's the word, preeminent. Christ preeminent. He is raised for this purpose, Paul says, in order that he might be in everything preeminent. Now listen very carefully. Jesus Christ is not now the head of all things. He is the head of his church. He is not at present the head of all things. He is the head of his church, his redeemed people. We live in a time after the resurrection when there are those who receive it and those who reject it. Those who receive it are gathered together into his body. He reigns over them as head, as firstborn from the dead of those who believe. And those who reject it are not within that body. Now there's a bunch of immediate applications, just very quickly. If Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the firstborn of all creation, then that means that Jesus is in charge here. You understand? This is Jesus' church. It's not my church. And I appreciate the way that we use this language, and I understand what we mean when we speak of the church as your church. But, but, but notice, he owns it. We are members of it. It belongs to him. He is the head. He is the preeminent one. His opinion, his rule, his will matters. Paul is saying he is the head of his people, his body, the church. But again, it's driving at this point that he is the head of the church. He is not presently the head of all things. And it suggests to us what we already know is true. That many people, in fact, many people that you know and care about, do not presently recognize Christ's preeminence. Paul is saying Christ is the preeminent one over all things but specifically in redemption over his people, and there are those who don't call him Lord. There are those who don't bow down before him as Savior and Master and King. But by his resurrection, a new beginning is being ushered in. A new kingdom, a new age is moving and in a direction that will one day reveal Christ to be all that he truly is in every sense, the preeminent one. But that day is not yet here. And in the meantime, we have this message in verse 19 and 20. Because not everyone recognizes Christ as the preeminent Lord of redemption, this is what our message is. Verse 19, in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. In other words, it's the gospel message, isn't it? That Jesus is Lord over his creation, but he is also Lord over a new creation who is being reconciled in Christ. He is bringing reconciliation to all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is bringing peace where peace does not presently exist. He is bringing harmony where disunity and fractured creation exists. This is just like in John's revelation in chapter 5 when he speaks of a lamb who is slain, but that slain lamb who then stands to reign over all things, as John says, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This lamb which was slain is now the slain lamb who is risen and reigning over all things, particularly his church, and then one day everything. But the great tragedy is of sin and rebellion is that people still don't recognize it. But 
One day it will be brought to peace by his death and resurrection. Are you following this logic? It's beautifully, beautifully exalting of Christ. And uh, I just want to... Really the application is behold your God and bow down and worship him. But I want to give you two additional applications. And I know I'm running short on time. I'm going to land this plane eventually. But I love flying this plane. Okay? This is a beautiful passage. Christ, the preeminent one, is Lord over all things. Let me give you two, two encouragements. One is a general encouragement, and one is a specific encouragement. Here is the general encouragement that really flows out of the first half of the passage. Christ presently reigns over all creation. In the 19th century, Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian and also a politician, he made this famous statement that has echoed through generations. He said it this way, There is not one square inch over all creation over which Jesus Christ does not say, Mine, and I rule it. Christ is the supreme Lord of all creation. Generally, as an encouragement, as you consider the affairs of the world, remembering that he holds it all together, remember that he reigns in all things, bringing everything to its appointed end. Believe it, and then believe it again. That's the general encouragement, but here is the specific encouragement. Christ generally reigns over all creation, but the specific encouragement is that Christ presently reigns supremely in the lives of his people. In the life of the Christian believer, Christ reigns as King and Lord and Sovereign One. One Puritan writer said it this way, Christ is not loved at all until he be loved above all. What do you love more than Christ? What do you treasure more than Christ? What do you prioritize and worship more than Christ? Listen to the way Samuel Rutherford says it. I can't say it any better. It's so beautiful. He says, our souls can't help but love. We were made to love. We cannot but love something fair. And oh, what a fair one. And what a lovely one. What an excellent one is Jesus. Put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden into one. Put all the trees and all the flowers and all the smells and all the colors and all the tastes and joys, all the sweetness, all the loveliness in the world. And oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Oh, Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. How can you not but love him? So what does it look like for you, for Jesus to exercise preeminence in your life, in your family, among your friends, in the way you speak, in the way you think, in what you look at, in what your heart loves, in what you treasure, in how your schedule is prioritized. How is Christ reigning supreme and preeminent in these things? 
It was Peter who said in John 6, 68, when Jesus said to him, many people are going, will you yourself go? And Peter said, do you remember the words? Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You alone are the Christ. There is no other. And the point that Paul is making to these Colossian Christians is, why would you go somewhere else? Or why would you succumb to the earthly pressure that there's something better or more satisfying or more life-giving than Jesus Christ? Dear friends, we should join the Colossian Christians in the first century by affirming in the 21st century that Christ is all. He is the preeminent one, the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption. And there is no better place to acknowledge that, loved ones, than at the table where he calls you to declare your allegiance and receive again the assurance of his love for you in redemption. What a glorious Christ he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow down before you and in your presence to say that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption. And oh, what a Savior he is. Lord, I pray that that in every one of our hearts today, that there would be an expanse and an increase of affection for Christ, a desire to serve Him more faithfully, more sincerely, more obediently than we have in the past, because we are seeing Him as more worthy. Lord, bless Your people now as You reign over us as the head of Your church. Bless this church in Edgington we might be a Christ-exalting people, we pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.